Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation! <laughs> I don't know what kind of voice you were doing, but you made me chuckle. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing either. I just, uh, I wasn't expecting to have you cut me off because we decided long ago that I didn't enjoy being on the receiving end of that because <laughs> I hated uh, this is a little inside baseball but I I, I hated um, uh, what's it called the response portion of our little intro the response portion I, I hated the improv aspect of it but, <laughs> but I wanted to throw you off man what better way to throw you off than to and that completely you did. flip the script and that you did. I, I think that was me doing like an opera guy or something. <laughs> it sounded kind of like you were forcing one out on the toilet. That that could be it too. Let's let's go with that. That's uh, constipated me. <laughs> one of my many many impersonations, which is really just me under some weird circumstances. That's 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 all my um that's all my impersonations really really are. It's like this is me in the bathroom, this is me at the dentist, this is me getting checked in my prostate. Apparently they're all prostate related. Seems like it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Welcome, Welcome. To between the cutters. <laughs> I was going to cut you off for the welcome, too. But you, you got me, man. You got me. I'll, I'll let you when go. When we talk it. about the stories within the panels, I'm your co-host, Albert. And with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? My name is Drew. Hello, hello. Well, we did have a bye week last week. Uh, so some time has elapsed. And I do feel like... You know, with the passage of time, we have come right back around and we are doing another of our installations, installments of the DC Top 25. We are finally back here, boys and girls. I like how you said installation because we're basically, it makes it sound like we're going to people's houses and really, you know, putting in some new hardware in their cabinets or installing a a new stove or Air something conditioner or something yeah yeah we're handymen we're we're handy dudes we're handy we're handsy uh i don't know about handsy i try I'm to handsy. keep my hands to myself oh okay okay <laughs> <laughs> i try to keep my hands wherever they want to go <laughs> <laughs> even if it's where the receiving party don't want them Exactly, exactly. Because I'm trying to get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> we are in the midst of installing comic book knowledge upon our listeners. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Albert, yes. before we get started, you just mentioned uh, we got back from a bye week. You went on some travels last week. Do you have any stories of any of the comic book stores you visited while you were out traveling? Hmm. I didn't really have too many stories i uh, yeah I, I wouldn't say i have any stories nothing nothing too interesting um i didn't run into the stock character version of comic book people that we're accustomed to seeing whenever we go to comic book stores only so, regular people huh only yeah only regular people i'd say um well, what was the one thing that i did that did catch my attention um 
when I was in Vegas recently, oh yeah, and by the way, all of these comic uh, comic shops I'm going to be posting on our Instagram just as you know part of our new hashtag the uh comics cartographers because we mapping out where the comics is in the land (laughs) you feel me i feel you i feel you so i went to this one shop and i guess they had moved locations i i hadn't been there before or i had been there before and when i went in they there were bits of their decor that looked familiar to me so i was like okay i think i recognize this shop Anyways, I went in there and suffice it to say, they had a bunch of deals. They had a bunch of dollar boxes outside the shop on tables. And then when you go inside the store, they had like a wall full of 50 cent short boxes. Uh, Oh, no, 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 no. No, they had a table of 50 cent stuff. Uh, Two tables. um, One located by the cashier, one located in the back. And then on the other side of that wall, there's an entire wall of dollar comics that you can check through. So there was that stuff too. And then they even had like a discount trade shelf. But I did I did notice that when I was digging through comics, um, the 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 shop owner uh, I didn't really catch his name, but he was having uh, a conversation with his employee, and at one point they mentioned. Brian Hibbs of Comics Experience. That, oh, that perked my ears up because I think they were talking about his podcast or something, and they were just discussing like his experiences and how it related to their experiences as a comic shop owner. Interesting. I, I, I didn't really like hear too much about it, but I just because I wasn't really paying attention prior to that. But when I heard Brian's name, I was like, oh, dude, you know. Did you go up and tell but, him, hey, that's the guy who r- runs my local comic shop? I didn't. I, I didn't <laughs> want to intrude. <laughs> but um, there was one portion of the conversation that I did catch, uh, like a, a bit of. So I'm not even entirely sure that I am understanding their conversation correctly. But it did make me chuckle just based on what I thought they were talking about. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> at one point, I, again, I, like, go back to digging through the boxes, and at one point, I hear them talking about Spawn. And, <laughs> yeah, and I didn't really hear too much of what they said before it, but I think they said something to the effect of, um, I think they were essentially just talking about the comics market and how people were buying things up in, in droves, uh, you know, because speculation and all that. And at one point, they mentioned Spawn, and what I think the context was, was the guy, the owner of the shop saying, yeah, we just couldn't do it anymore, because we just, we can only buy so much Spawn, and like have these people (laughs) come in here and like try to buy it up before, you know, they figure out that it's trash, and then we're stuck with all these Spawns, or something (laughs) like that, like, it was some ver- version of that was essentially what he was talking about. It was just yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's good. They got some sense in them. Yeah. Yeah. I do recommend that shop. I will post uh, the pictures of it on our Instagram. So if you follow us, look for the comics cartographers hashtag, and you know, 
we'll 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 put that up there for your all of you to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that being said, we are going to enter into I believe number twenty-four of the top twenty-five DC comics of all time. Drew, that's right. What is number twenty-four? We are going to be talking about Sandman Mystery Theater. This is number 24 on our list. I'll introduce the series. Um, Actually, before we do all that, uh, I should briefly say for anyone who's interested in hearing us uh, explain our thought processes and criteria for our, our list, you can go back to episodes, episode uh, 192, I believe, where we talked about Gotham Central at number 25 on our list. Uh, but we we have a playlist on Spotify, if you check our link tree, where you can find all of our episodes, our uh, DC Top 25 episodes. We have qu- quite a few honorable and dishonorable mentions in that playlist right now. And as we continue into the future, we'll continue to populate and update that playlist so eventually when we're done we'll have a long playlist with all 25 of our episodes in this sub-series that we're doing but to sum it up briefly we we have four criteria that we uh assigned points to all the different comics that we could think of that that we've read and we'll cover those criteria in more detail as we discuss them later throughout this episode but just as a means of introduction, our criteria are craft, originality, impact, and withstanding the test of time. So just those four things, and each of us scored them, and that's how we ended up with our final list, which we will continue to unveil uh, as time progresses, and assuming that we're both alive. (laughs) I'd like to think that even beyond the grave, I'll still be somewhere talking about the things that i hate and the things that i love (laughs) (laughs) well said well said i gotta second that okay so we're talking about sandman mystery theater this was published by vertigo comics one of dc's imprints was published from about april 1993 to february 1999 at least that's the cover dates so you know give or take a few months in real life but the series was one of vertigo's launch titles it ran for 70 issues plus one annual and one prestige format special which was titled sandman midnight theater and that was a crossover with neil gaiman's sandman here's a little bit of background info on the book sandman mystery theater was written by Matt Wagner and Stephen T. Siegel, primarily drawn by Guy Davis. There were also other artists who did arcs uh, in between Guy Davis's arcs. So some of those artists include John Watkiss, R.G. Taylor, Vince Locke, Warren Police, Matthew Dow Smith, Michael Lark, and Richard Case. The colorist was David Hornung, The letterers were John Costanza, Gaspar Saladino, and Clem Robbins. Karen Berger was the editor. 
And the assistant editors throughout the series were Shelley Bond, Kerry Kowalski, and Joan Hilty. Initially, the series was collected in incomplete fashion in trade paperbacks multiple times, meaning uh, they never collected the entire series. To this, At the point of this recording, they still have not collected the entirety of the series. However, mm-hmm. earlier this year, DC released a compendium, a paperback compendium collection, which collects half of the series. So, I don't know. Do you think they'll release a second volume to complete the run, Albert? Or are they just going to leave everybody hanging again? I would say that, logically speaking, in, if, if we lived in a sane and reasonable world, we should, we should expect that a second volume of the compendium, compendium will be released completing the set. But because we live in an utterly mad world where <laughs> the people at the top seem to derive great pleasure and joy from sharding all over us i it would not surprise me if they convinced themselves that sales were not strong enough to justify completing the set so <laughs> once again robbing us of something <laughs> it's messed up because back in the mid 2000s starting from around like 2005 for a few years, they were releasing smaller trade paperback editions that collected one or two arcs at a time. And they got mm-hmm. all the way up to issue 52. And remember, this series went volumes 70. From what I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after issue 52, they they didn't collect anything else. Yeah. And then, like six years after that, in 2016, they tried doing these bigger collections that collected 12 issues at a time. And they did two books, so they got up to issue 24, and then they stopped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's completely flaccid of them. It's like they tried on multiple occasions to do it, and each time they just gave up on it. They tried it's, so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. They didn't even get that far. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'd even go so far as to say that what they've done with the collected editions of this, and and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does feel par for the course, if only because I think even the series eventually just kind of ended with the with a rug pull, right? Like they like once they once canceled. they got to the yeah once they got to the end of the series after such a long run, they they got canceled and you kind of get that sense from reading it like granted uh i don't i'm not mad at the writing team and the creative team and the artists uh because they did the best they could they they went for as long as they could and ultimately in the end they were screwed over just as much as we were mm-hmm. more more than we were mm-hmm. but it, it just feels like it's the original sin that just follows this book around because Every time they try to keep bringing it back, they just <laughs> they just do the same thing, which is yeah. they find a way to screw this book over. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the creators getting screwed over at the end, I was reading uh, this interview book with Guy Davis. It's one of the Modern Masters collections. It's Modern Masters Volume 24, which came out in 2010. But... This book has a an extensive interview with Guy Davis. And in that interview, he mentioned how 
Sandman Mystery Theater was something that was that really helped him stabilize his career as an artist and make a make a real living because prior to this book he had been doing indie comics and other illustration work to try and make ends meet but having the steady gig from DC made all the difference and he actually bought a house towards the end of the run and he he had gotten to the point where he felt the stability of it and he was he was talking to the editors and people saying asking how the book was doing and they were like yeah you know you you're doing we're doing well and uh you know DC even helped him out by advancing him some money so that he could make ends meet uh, as he was making this big purchase but then <laughs> he said like 2 months after he bought the house uh the book got canceled <laughs> and he was yeah. like oh shoot <laughs> it's like things like that happen all the time in the real world like there are things that you can't necessarily control especially when you make a big purchase like that but it feels like this was something that <laughs> granted he might not have talked to a person that was in the know or or that had that sort of foresight but still it still feels like they have a more direct hand in <laughs> just how bad that all went down yeah you know? i mean in the interview it didn't sound like he was upset or angry about it it was just more like man i can't believe this happened like i lived yeah. through that there's an all there's an almost like larry david-esque uh sort of <laughs> absurdity to it you know yeah exactly okay here's a little bit of background on the creation of sandman mystery theater Maybe I'll call it SMT for short here and there. But the book came about as Vertigo was starting up in the early 90s. Karen Berger, the editor and chief mastermind behind the line, early on she asked Matt Wagner to come up with a pitch for any of DC's old characters. Seems like Alan Moore's revitalization of Swamp Thing in the 80s and Neil Gaiman's Sandman, things like that really encouraged DC to look at their back catalog of characters and see who else would be ripe for a new spin. So another good example of that was would be my beloved Shade the Changing Man. That was another success story. I love that comic. But Matt Wagner had become familiar with Guy Davis's work through the indie comic Baker Street, which was a Guy Davis comic about uh, sort of a, a reimagined punk version of Sherlock Holmes in an alternate world. So Wagner had saw that, had seen that comic. He invited Guy Davis to do a Grendel pinup, uh, Grendel, one of Matt Wagner's uh, creator-owned works. So he did the one pinup, but the two still wanted to work together properly in the future. So Matt Wagner invited Guy Davis to give him a list of old or forgotten DC characters that they could reimagine for a Vertigo series. Davis went to his local store and he dug through issues of DC's who's who from the get go, <laughs> from the nice. get go. Davis was interested in a pulp character. He was looking for somebody kind of along the lines of Green Hornet or something like that. One of the other DC characters he was interested in using was Dr. Midnight, but eventually he came across the Golden Age Sandman, and that intrigued him. As long as he could do 
uh, more realistic design for the costume because the if you look at the Golden Age Sandman's original look, he's got a mask on. It's not necessarily a realistic looking gas mask, and he's got uh, a cape and a suit. It just looks kind of funny. Yeah, but from what I remember, it was kind of a it was more of a generic look. Yeah, if you could com- if you compared it to like everybody else, like. Mm-hmm. I think it was that early version of pulp superheroes where it was in fashion to have them wear masks and capes, but also be in suits with fedoras. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, it's still, that's still a stylistic flourish that I think we've been bringing back in modern comics, but I'd have to imagine that it was something that was, pretty prevalent at the time and had already kind of maybe not run its course but it it had definitely seen more than its fair share of imitators up to that point yeah and certainly by the early 90s that was a pretty tired look i don't think it would have appealed to too many people Mm -hmm. i was gonna say yeah but i i do think that that sort of has come back around in modern in the modern era where you know it feels like the thing now is to almost have superhero costumes all look like just regular clothing or street clothes. That's a good point. That's all. That was just my two cents. Yeah. Yeah. Things, yeah these things, things go in cycles. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Time is a flat right, circle, man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So Wagner was definitely game for using the Sandman character. And Davis submitted some character design sheets to Karen Berger, and eventually they had a deal for the series. Originally, Guy Davis was meant to be one of two or three rotating artists on the book because I think the plan was that he thought he could be able to live off the DC money and do Baker Street on his off months. But eventually, he decided to be the main artist of the series. So when you look at the run in its entirety, the standard pattern of it was that guy davis would do eight issues and then somebody else would do four issues and then he'd come back and do eight and that worked for the rhythm of the series because up until the last two issues every story was a four-part story so you'd get two stories a year that were entirely drawn by guy davis and then one story by another artist and usually these other artists were pretty good themselves so, yeah, all of this information on the backstory, I got that from that Modern Masters interview with Guy Davis. It's a really good retrospective on his career up to that point. The, I think I mentioned the book came out in 2010, so he was still working on BPRD at the time. There's not a whole ton of information or conversation about his time on SMT. Like, there's a few pages dedicated to that, but... Uh, if you just like Guy Davis's art in general, his career, his his creative processes, and BPRD and some of his creator own work, that book is a treasure trove for for that sort of thing. Let me ask you, Albert, what are your thoughts on any of the creatives involved, Matt Wagner, Stephen T. Siegel, Guy Davis, or anyone else? Um, okay, I'll try to go through those in order. Yeah. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was just about to suggest the same thing. 
Okay. So Matt Wagner is someone that I'm somewhat familiar with because he was a big name in, I want to say, the 90s, maybe 80s, 80s, 90s. Because yeah. the things that I recognize him from were things like Mage and Grendel, like you mentioned earlier. Those were, like, I don't think I ever read any of those books, but even as a kid going to a comic book, going to comic book stores, I would see posters of those a lot, quite a bit. So it was something that I was familiar with to an extent, but not knowledgeable about. Like, it felt like the comic book shop person, you know, the comic book shop guy, that classic uh, analog or whatever, for every comic book shop, it always felt like there was someone who was into mage or grendel mm -hmm. and like they would always have posters of this all over the place i don't think did he never mind i was gonna uh, i think he did the demon too that was something yeah. else right yeah he did a demon yeah. miniseries back in the 80s for dc yeah so so i i'm a little familiar with him i think i didn't i don't think i read any stuff by him until years later until i was older when he did some and batman had, comics he did. You're right. He did do some of these. He did uh, Trinity, I think, was one of them. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. he did these sort of pulpy Batman stories. Um, I forgot what they were called, like monsters of something. The Monster Men, I think it was. Batman and Batman. the Mad Monk. Batman and the Monster Men. Yeah. Yeah. See, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, he also did a I think it was a three parter in Legends of the Dark Knight called Faces, which he wrote Andrew that had a. That had Two Face. Mm. It was a Two Face story, from what I remember. I need to reread that, but I might have given away my copies. I think I've seen that around, but I don't think I've ever read it. Like I'll I'll see it occasionally in in discount bins and boxes and whatnot, but yeah, I just don't think I've ever uh, read it. I feel like Faces is being... one of those uh, Legends of the Dark Knight arcs that I've bought multiple times, and each time I've read it, I end up giving it away because I think <laughs> oh, I didn't love it that much. I give it away, and then I see it again. I'm like, yeah. actually, I did like that. I should buy this. <laughs> like, it just keeps happening. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a sickness, but man. It's a I, sickness. It's the curse of the comic buyer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, I, I think that kind of touches on what I was about to say, which was I didn't read any of his comics until I was older. And if I had to be perfectly honest, Matt Wagner wasn't someone that I was too into as a writer i think i read one volume of mage when i was in college and you know I, I thought it was fine um but i do remember reading superman i think it was superman trinity or it might have just been called trinity i forget yeah i think it was uh, but, superman wonder woman batman trinity yeah yeah so i remember reading that and i remember reading that batman and the mad monk and batman versus the monster men or whatever uh-huh uh -huh. and I read those and yeah, I don't, they didn't do anything to solidify my love for Matt Wagner, if I had to be perfectly honest. So even going into this podcast, as we listed out all the things that were in contention to being in the top 25, I hadn't yet to read Sandman Mystery Theater at that point. So, you know, for the podcast, I did end up going and I took it upon myself to read the entirety of the series. Just so we can grade it properly. 
just so I could grade it properly, exactly, and give it a fair grade. And it clearly made it to the list. So, you know, I my contribution to, to that clearly gave it enough uh, points in the right places that it made it so that it could qualify for this list at 24. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that's to say that, yeah, I think uh, Sandman Mystery Theater is definitely my favorite thing from him. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I like Matt Wagner enough now to necessarily try any of his other stuff, but I don't, not outright dismissive of him. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget. Did you ever um, read any of his Grendel or was it just Mage? I think I even, I think I might've read, read some random Grendel stuff, but I, I don't, I don't think any of that really caught my attention either. Or like the stuff mm-hmm. that I did read just never really did anything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Next was Stephen T. Siegel, I believe. He's someone that I do recognize primarily from uh, his solo comic, which was It's a Bird. Yep. We discussed that on episode 132. It was one of our honorable mentions. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a great book. I I recently, well, not recently, but maybe a couple of years ago, I I did find a, a hardcover edition of it for cheap. I want to say that I found it from the Green Apple, but yeah, it's it's definitely a quality book, and it's something that gave me a lot of it. It gave me respect for Stephen T. Siegel, so that when I do see his name on something, I'm more than welcome to give that a try. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that what's the other thing? Like I know he worked on some Superman comics. I don't think I ever really read any of those. The other thing that I know him from is. He does work on cartoons with Joe Casey and Joe Kelly. Mm-hmm. And Duncan Rollo. They formed Man of Action yeah. Studios, which is responsible for yeah. Ben 10. Yeah, yeah. And that's a show that they've like rebooted several times now. Uh, it's a huge moneymaker for them, which I, you know, I, I commend him on. I, I don't know. I'd have to look at his body of work, but I really can't think of any other comics that he's worked on that I recognize other than, oh, House of Secrets. I don't think I ever really read all of that. I think I found some issues a while ago and read like eight or nine issues of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, other than that, I, I don't think I've read anything else by Stephen T. Siegel. Um, he wrote a lot of Marvel and DC and image books during a p- period when I wasn't super interested in, in comics. Especially with his Marvel stuff, because he wrote an era of X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, when I had pretty much stopped reading X-Men comics. Mm, So mm. I I don't, and from what I gathered, it it wasn't like a particularly good era either. You know, that late 90s period was pretty messy. So Mm. I don't know if I would ever, I probably wouldn't ever really go back to those unless I just found a chunk of them for super cheap. Uh, he, yeah, he had yeah, a run right. on Alpha Flight around that same time period in the late 90s as well. I never read any of those. Was that the Heroes Reborn era of Alpha Flight where when all the other major superheroes died, Alpha Flight had to step up? <laughs> yeah, I think that could have been because that coincides with Onslaught and all that. Okay, okay. Okay. He did a bunch of yeah, random I I... Uh, Wildstorm comics too, like Stormwatch and Grifter. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would read those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if we look at, uh, if we look at 
Sandman Mystery Theater and, you know, It's a Bird. Those two on their own are already pretty great comics. Yeah. You know. Agreed. Agreed. Like, it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. Definitely nothing um, to be ashamed of. I'm also curious about his House of Secrets because I found a bunch of those issues from Quarter Bins recently, earlier this year. So I'm trying to see if I can put together a set. And if I can, then I'll dive in and read it. But I hope I can find it. You're really close, right? I'm missing a handful of issues. And then mm. after that series ended, there was a two-part prestige format miniseries called House of Secrets Facade. So I need that mm. as well. Right, right. Yeah. I ain't going to lie. Those are going to be hard to track down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like we never see those. Yeah, I didn't even know they existed until like you looked them up. <laughs> yeah. After I saw what I had to track down, I was like, what have I done? <laughs> now I've got to track down all these obscure comics. Dang it. Well, again, that's just more of our curse. <laughs> it's a sickness. It's a sickness, Albert. Our sickness. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Um, other than Stephen T. Siegel, the other name I recognize is Guy Davis. I, when I think of him, I, I think primarily of this comic, uh, Sandman Mystery Theater. He's someone that I, I, oh, I know you he's think done. of this before BPRD. Yeah, I didn't, I don't read a lot of those BPRD comics or his Hellboy stuff. So that's, I didn't. I thought, yeah, I thought it had you, uh, you read a chunk of uh, Abe Sapien and Klopp yeah, Johnson. Yeah, but he didn't work on those. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But I, I figured that you were into that universe, so you might be aware of his other stuff. Uh, no. My my interest in him was in those books were pretty. Well, it, it was mostly just due to circumstance. It was the fact that I found a bunch of Klopp Johnson comics by accident that i ended up tracking all those down and reading those I like and how then... you called him clobster johnson <laughs> <laughs> and the same goes for uh the same goes for abe sapien and i probably even have less less love for abe sapien even though i have a ton of affection for max fiamura uh scotty ailey alley worked on those and that's just not a good thing <laughs> bitey the clown bitey the clown <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I, I i didn't even know that guy davis was working on that i i'd say that my association with him is this there i feel like there was some other random comic that you loaned me once uh that was that had art done by guy davis i forget what it was about or the title of the book <laughs> but um the other thing that i know no. about him yeah, it existed. And, you know, we should all be so lucky that we can say that about ourselves. I, I, I don't know if I can say that I exist. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't matter to anyone. <laughs> you need to listen Anyways. to your own podcast so you can hear your own voice. <laughs> Just to reaffirm my my reason for being. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, um, the one thing, the other one other thing that I do know him from, and I don't even know like what the, the degree of his involvement is but i do believe that he contributed to art from steven universe mm -hmm. and that's a cartoon uh that i have a lot of affection for 
It's on Cartoon Network. It ended a while ago, but yeah, it's a great series and it was pretty cool seeing his name associated with it. Yeah, yeah. And you know who else was associated with Steven Universe? Steven T. Siegel? Okay. No. Chuck Austin. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was the showrunner for season one. Oh, man. That's got to be the best thing Chuck Austin's ever done then. I think it is. I think it is. Um, Like, I don't have any love for, for Chuck Austin, but the fact that he worked on that show gave me a little bit of just a smidgen of respect for him. He's not completely worthless at life. Yeah, he gave me one thing that I love. That's that's more than what you can say about a lot of people. Exactly. If anything, most people give me reasons to hate things. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's that's my uh, knowledge of the the three tentpole creatives behind San SMT Sandman Mystery Theater. That's right. It's spelled the British way for some reason. Never figured out why, <laughs> other than I guess it looks more sophisticated. Yeah, makes it classy. The Brits are chocked full of class. Whereas we, we chocked full of ass. <laughs> <laughs> if we have any British listeners out there, hopefully... uh. That'll be enough to motivate you into giving us a five-star rating on whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on. (laughs) (laughs) Only other couple things I have to add about Matt Wagner and Steven T. Siegel is that Matt Wagner does seem to like his Pulp Heroes because I remember this was after SMT, but he also wrote Green Hornet comics. He wrote The Shadow Zoro and the spirit for dynamite this must have been like in the past 20 years or so i don't remember exactly i never read those comics i just remember seeing his name on them but i wasn't i was i was never that interested to investigate them i have read some grendel though and there are a few grendel comics that i i wasn't really fond of but there are also a couple that i'm extremely fond of so I don't know. It's kind of, I guess you could say, sort of a mixed bag for me when it comes to Matt Wagner. I have more affection for his Batman stuff than you do. I think it's because some of the storytelling choices he makes in his Batman comics makes it feel like it's more quaint or maybe from a a bygone era, but just executed with a modern sensibility. I don't know. It it kind of reminds me of like his Batman stories are very pulpy too. Like they're very they're very much in that mold of taking old stories from I don't know, maybe the golden age or or the early part of the, the silver radio age. Era. Yeah, like like a radio drama and just like or or maybe a a cartoon or something that you'd see from that period but just making them a little bit more uh palatable for a modern reader. But I can I can understand if there was something that you weren't too into because they're not necessarily the most sophisticated either. Like there's not a, I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of depth to the stories themselves. It was more just 
the way that he told the story, the artwork and the storytelling, the execution of it just seemed pretty good. I, mm. I did end up getting rid of my copies of Batman and the Mad Monk and Batman and the Monster Men just to clear out some space. But mm. I still have my copy of Trinity. For some reason, that's the one I enjoy going back to to flip through when I just want to look at his art. I got to ask, mm-hmm. just, just for my knowledge, but I think, isn't Trinity the one where they take on Ra's al Ghul? Yeah. It's okay. It's uh, it's not only Ra's al Ghul, but it's one of each of their rivals. So Batman's got Ra's al Ghul and Wonder Woman. I, shoot, I I kind of forget. I think I want to say it's Artemis, but it could have been Cheetah. I'm pretty sure it was Artemis though. And right, then right. there was Bizarro. I didn't doubt. I was just say Cheetah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you know the natural enemy of an Amazon is a Cheetah. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But definitely some Grendel stories are things I really like from him because I really liked Grendel Prime and I really liked, uh, I want to say it was Devil by the Deed, but sometimes I get the titles mixed up, but it's, it was the one that was drawn by the Pander brothers. I really liked that one. And I liked the one about the future Grendel that was kind of like a lone wolf and cub thing. Steven T. Siegel, yeah, just a little detail about him on his work on SMT. He wasn't initially on the series. The series began with Wagner as the sole writer, but Siegel joined as co-writer on issue 13, and then he became the main writer on issue 53 as Wagner transitioned into more of a plot or idea generator. And then finally, Siegel became the sole writer with issue 60. And from what I remember reading about their collaboration, it seemed like the writing process on SMT was pretty cohesive and and comfortable for both of them. They seemed to enjoy working together and they worked well together. I don't think there was anything, any case of egos or treading on each other's toes because one guy didn't like the other guy's ideas if anything it sounds like they really were able to kind of hone things down by working together and sharpen the stories that they were interested in telling Mm -hmm. then as for guy davis he's definitely one of my all-time favorite artists personally speaking i think he's probably known for being able to draw a few things in particular, like the three things I would say people associate him with would be horrifying monsters, period pieces, and punk subculture. And mentioned earlier that probably his best known comics work is BPRD, the Hellboy spinoff, which was written by Mike Mignola and John Arcudi and colored by Dave Stewart. But some of the other comics of his that that I'm familiar with are Baker Street, which was his indie creator-owned series from caliber that was like the late 80s maybe early 90s uh he did one called the Nevermen with dark horse there was one he did with humanoids called the zombies that ate the world which was done in a more cartoony style and he also had another creator-owned series called the marquee which was another thing kind of similar to hellboy where it was about a guy 
who was fighting off demons from hell. Uh, except it was way darker and probably more grotesque than than something like Hellboy. Mm. Now, around okay. 2011, he abruptly quit BPRD and essentially seemed to leave the comics industry behind him. So nowadays, it seems like he primarily works in film and television with the occasional video game. But he has a long association with Guillermo del Toro. He did extensive design work and concept art for the Strain television series, as well as major movies such as Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, The Shape of Water, and Pinocchio. He also did some work on the Pan's Labyrinth bonus features. And like you mentioned, he's done some cartoon stuff too, like Steven Universe. He also did concept art for Paranorman and The nice. Mill at Calder's End. Are you familiar with those shows? Uh, Paranorman is a movie done by Leica Studio, and I actually just watched it or for the second time a couple of weeks ago as part of my Halloween watch. Mm. And I would have to say that that stands up I, I like I really like Leica as a studio. They're one of the few, if not the only studio that I can think of that does like stop motion animation. Yeah, but but yeah, they did Coraline is probably their biggest title that people remember or think of, and then follow they followed that up with the likes of Paranorman and. Oh, Kubo and the Two Strings. And then there was that other one about the Bigfoot that they did a few years ago. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, I, I've liked all of their, all of the movies they put out and it's, it was cool to see his, his association with it. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing to see that even though he's left comics, very, it feels like whenever people work with comics, they don't ever end up doing too well for themselves. I don't, like in the vast majority of cases. Yeah. So it, it does feel good to hear that he left the comics industry and he ended up being able to survive and continue to, you know, care for himself in, even if it was in another industry. Yeah. At least he's still doing art and I'm pretty sure he gets paid yeah. a lot better than when he was scrapping for project to project, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Because in, in reading that interview with him in Modern Masters, I really got the sense that his early years as an artist were pretty challenging because he was doing a lot of indie work, but he would take all sorts of any kind of illustration freelance job that he could find. So he did a lot of illustrations for RPGs, things like uh, Vampire, The Masquerade, and I think there was something called Aberrant and some other things that I, mm. I don't even know what they are or remember them. Uh, I remember yeah. he said he was doing some illustrations for fetish magazines and things like that. Just anything, <laughs> you know, like anything like twisted or or like weird stuff. Like he was kind of good yeah. at that and, and had a lot of opportunities to, to draw stuff like that. So he was saying how his experience drawing weird bondage fetish stuff for yeah, yeah. his freelance jobs did affect how he drew how he designed some of the characters in Sandman Mystery Theater because I think the Phantom of the Fair story, the Phantom, he basically said he drew that guy as as like some bondage thing, you know, like right, some, right. some weird <laughs> and he was like, he drew that and he gave it to DC and he was like, man, they're probably gonna reject that. But to his surprise, they were okay with it. <laughs> right, right. 
it's interesting because I, I am sometimes I, I've spent quite a bit of time around the the con scene with artists, and I do feel like that's a pretty common thing for a lot of artists to end up doing, you know, shall we call it a uh, 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 niche art <laughs> yes. for, for fans because they tend to do a lot of commissions and things and i remember asking uh, a buddy of mine just like <laughs> i was just asking like random questions about it because it, it was just something that fascinated me where i was just like what's the weirdest thing that they ever got you to draw and like do you get this often like like yeah just stuff like that so i i think it's it's more common than we realize and it's just a thing that we don't think about i certainly didn't think about it until uh you know until mm. you just mentioned it just now anyways yeah the other thing i was going to mention real quick was i'm not 100 percent sure if this is associated with why he left dark horse but i think guy davis was also i want to say that he was one of the guys that spoke out against scott alley yeah um so from what I know, I think he clarified that he didn't leave BPRD because of Scott Alley. I don't think he knew about what was going on at the time. He was working on the book. Um, and this isn't from the Modern Masters book because this uh, the Modern Masters interview was from before he left the book. But this is just me doing some research uh, earlier this week because I need to be talking about Guy Davis. But from what I gathered, it seems like there is a chance that they might have had some creative differences on the book between him and Mignola and Arcudi. I don't know exactly what happened, um, but I do remember when the news came out in 2020 that Scott Alley was a sexual harasser. He, Guy Davis came out and also questioned why Mike Mignola continued to work with him and, you know, took a firm stance against this predator. So um, I don't think, I don't know what his relationship is with Mike Mignola now or with his, any of his former collaborators on BPRD, but I think he, he did clarify that he, he did not know about what happened with Scott Alley and what Scott Alley was doing while Guy Davis was working on the books but it, it okay. seems like he doesn't regret leaving Dark Horse. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't remember the letter that he put out verbatim, but I did remember the sense of it, which was exactly what you said. It didn't seem like he regretted it. It didn't seem like he viewed them as like close friends or anything more like that, where yeah. he felt the need to defend them or anything yeah he, he basically you know? put out a statement supporting shauna gore and saying that he believed her and and yeah he just like went straight at mignola questioning why he would work with a predator yeah because he he did yeah, i think go. he did imply that mignola knew about the behavior that was going on but continued to work with scott alley because mm -hmm. if you think about the timeline um yeah, it like the news about Scott Alley's misbehavior was already out there on comics news sites years before Shauna Gore came out and made her statement in 2020. So 
um, between that time, Mignola and Scott Alley continued to work together with Alley editing the Hellboy stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, there we go. That's our, our tea, tea time right there. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who come to the podcast for the drama. <laughs> well, other work that Guy Davis has done, I know he's also done video game conceptual designs. Uh, one of them was this game called Evolve. I played that one for a little bit. I never got super into it, but Evolve is this first-person shooter, a multiplayer game. It's player versus player, but it's asymmetrical, meaning that it's not divided into even teams fighting against each other like in a team-based Call of Duty or Overwatch or anything like that. Evolve is about a, a team of people armed with guns and stuff like that, like you're the humans, and then I forget if there's like four or five of you, but the humans are on one side, and and then on the other side is one guy who is a monster, and the monster has you know special abilities that the humans don't have access to. So it becomes like the the idea is like four or five people team up to fight a big monster boss that's actually another player. I see. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, and I could easily imagine Guy Davis having fun designing the various monsters and creatures in that game. And then the other thing I know he worked on, because he's been posting some stuff uh, on his Instagram recently, is Diablo 4, which just came out recently. Okay, okay. Again, it's good to see that he's gotten so much work and that he still, you know, can take care of himself and is yeah just busy mm-hmm. happy to see that mm-hmm. another a couple other little tidbits that i gleaned from reading the interview with him he didn't grow up really being a fan of superheroes it's not that he hates superheroes but he just never had a real natural interest in the genre and when you look at his body <laughs> of work most of it is kind of like superhero adjacent i guess you could say i don't know if like i don't know if you would consider smt a superhero comic or not it's definitely got superhero elements in it with the main character and all mm. that but it's sort of debatable i guess you could say the same thing with bprd like they're all it's clearly like patterned after a superhero kind of comic but technically i don't know if if you if people get into the semantics of all that that's not necessarily something that i think about too much but I, I do know that he isn't uh, he said he wasn't really interested in in superhero comics growing up, so he never really gravitated towards uh, stuff like your Green Lanterns or Superman or whatever. Because during that period when he was doing SMT and things were starting to dry up when the book got canceled, uh, he he did get some opportunities I think to do some more dc work but i think he was also trying to find a way out and maybe he could where he could do something that he you know that he really would be happy drawing like there, there's a funny anecdote that he shared where he did an issue of shadow of the bat during no man's land this was probably a few months after smt was canceled i have the issue with me uh, right here i've got a copy of it 
Uh, I think SMT's final issue was cover dated like February 99. And this issue of Shadow of the Bat, issue 86, cover dated June 1999. It was part of the No Man's Land crossover. And there's a funny anecdote that he shared because he said it was one of those stories where the script had already been written and they just needed an artist, but none of the other artists wanted to draw it because it's a Batman comic and Batman is not in the comic. (laughs) (laughs) And the story is about this old man who was a a World War II veteran and he's just living in his house during no man's land because like all the city has been destroyed because of the earthquake and then all the supervillains have their own gangs. There's just bands of marauders roving around and this old man is just stubborn and steadfast in his uh, refusal to abandon his house that he's lived in for decades and built so many memories and his whole life there. So he just defends his house with his gun and his strength of character and will in the midst of all this chaos. He's trying to like look out for all the other neighbors that weren't able to escape the no man's land. But um, there's a funny story where Guy Davis said, when he started drawing that issue, he opens up the first page with this expansive splash of a panoramic shot of Gotham City in all its glory. And then he turned, you know, he turned that into the editor and the editor was like, what are you doing? You just drew Gotham City. And he's like, huh? I thought this was a Batman comic. And then the guy was like, no, it's no man's land. Don't you know? Gotham City's been destroyed by an earthquake. <laughs> and he was like, huh? It's no man's land. <laughs> so he had to get white out and like erase some of the buildings and draw more rubble and stuff. It, it's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> he made it too nice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Another thing about his work, uh, specifically regarding... SMT is I know he didn't like the coloring on it. He he specifically said he was displeased with the coloring on the first few issues of the series and then it got to the point where uh his complaints to Karen Berger eventually they allowed him to be privy to the color guides in the future so he could have more say as to how the final product looked. And I think things did get a little better, but even so I don't believe he is enthusiastic about the coloring of the series. He's somebody who came up in the ranks of comics doing his work in black and white. And when you look at his black and white stuff, like his Baker Street or even some of the black and white dream sequences in SMT, they look really, really good. But I I feel like when you look at his the colored pages on SMT, sometimes it gets pretty garish. I'm not I'm not too big a fan mm. of the coloring myself. It actually kind of makes me sick at times because of the weird tones of the greens and browns. It just It's just sickly to me. It looks like mucus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. His, coloring, his colorist on BPRD, Dave Stewart, that guy was a lot better. And I, th- I think he had a lot of praise for Dave Stewart's coloring. But unfortunately, uh, in Sam and Mystery Theater, we just, you know, we're stuck with what we got. Mm-hmm. any All other right. general thoughts you want to share before we move on 
No, not not especially. I think anything else I'd have to say we can cover once we start breaking it down. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm content to move on if you are. Yeah. You want to discuss the craft of the book? Let's go into it because I All think right. it's the perfect transition. Yeah. So, so our first criteria is the craft by which we're just asking, is the comic technically sound? Is it well written, well illustrated? Did the creators demonstrate mastery of the language and form of comics? So what do you think, Albert? What do you have to say about the craft of Sandman Mystery Theater? We've mentioned that the writing is pretty spot on. I, I Well, I don't know if we mentioned that, but I'm saying it now. So <laughs> <laughs> cut and print. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> yeah, but I did enjoy reading it. Um, and it came to me as a surprise because, like you said, I'm not, or like I mentioned earlier, I'm not the hugest fan of Matt Wagner. And I I will admit that I went into it expecting, um, maybe not necessarily to hate it, or or but certainly I came into it expecting not to to love it or even enjoy it. And I think enough positive elements were definitely there that it broke through whatever initial biases I had against it. So I do think the writing was pretty spot on. And we mentioned the art, Guy Davis, uh, you know, and, and the various other uh, artists that worked on it. We did mention, um, you know, just our general appreciation for their art style. It's, I guess if we're going to go into it a little bit, we can talk about what Guy Davis's art looks like. I'll, I'll, we'll try to find the words to describe it, but there is a scratchy quality to it. If you look at his line work, mm-hmm. there's... Mm-hmm. It's almost squiggly, and I, I, I'm just going to keep saying it, scratchy, um, even though yeah. He pencils and inks his own work. Yeah, yeah. So even though everything takes the shape of things that you expect it to, there's also this weird quality to it. Um, and I think the first volume, The Tarantula, is uh, an interesting showcase for it because the way that the book is themed it's themed around spiders and there are certain scenes in the book where when you look at it it just feels like everything is covered in like cobwebs and there's like a darkness to it and i think it all works you know it it really does a great job of capturing mood and atmosphere so um he's he's clearly talented as an artist even though maybe at an initial glance a person could look at it and Again, at a glance, they might think it's ugly or whatever, but I think it's actually quite, well, maybe attractive isn't the word to look at, but it's cool to look at, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, speaking of what you were saying about some of his art in that first story arc, about how things look like spider webs, I'm looking at this early splash page in issue four, the concluding chapter of that story. And there's a car chase to open up that issue. And in that car chase, they're driving across a bridge. And the way that the cables are of that bridge are drawn, like, number one, it's very intricately detailed. But mm. secondly, when I looked at that, it just made me think of a spider's web for some reason. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, other things that I can say are, in terms of his human forms, I think he draws pretty realistic people, not in the sense that they're, like, 
hyper realistic, but in the sense that they have believable body proportions. You know, these mm. this isn't a Jim Lee drawing or a, a T Mac or Rob Liefeld where it's the you know Gre- Grecian ideal <laughs> of what a person's supposed to look like. Yeah, because you know the women are like. I have no other way of saying it, but normal looking, right? Like they're not ridiculously busty or shapely. Not just the men, but the women and the children too. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It's the but I was gonna say the women, it's not like the they're like ridiculously busty or over sexualized or anything. They have realistic proportions. They look the way that people do. And you're right, the men in the same regard are are drawn in a similar fashion where even um the sandman himself he's kind of doughy you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh like for people who are accustomed to superman being just covered in six pack abs all over the place um S- sandman does not look like that at all you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah and... Actually, you know what I just realized? Do you want to take a moment here and briefly give a synopsis of what Sandman Mystery Theater is all about? Because I think we totally just skipped over that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so Sandman Mystery Theater, I mean, I think we've, we've covered it a little bit here and there, but it's it's essentially taking this golden age hero, this mystery man who goes around solving crimes and sort of puts a contemporary sheen on it so it's a story that takes place in that 1940s era i i want to say that the war world war ii if it's has it's looming it's it's yeah, happening exactly. in europe but america hasn't been involved yet early exactly. on in the story we're told uh in one of the early issues that it's 1938 and then the series ends on new year's day of 1940 right right so it's pretty tied into the time period. It it acknowledges what the social climate is as well as the political climate in the world. Uh, I think in that first volume, we don't really see too much of that. But as the book progresses, they it definitely draws from things that happened in history and, again, in, in the world, just in terms of what the social climate of their America is. And believe me, there's a lot of stuff in there uh to to draw from in terms of material to discuss in the book mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. yeah he um sorry i i was pulling something up but yeah the main character of the book i i forget his name <laughs> uh <laughs> sam you forgot sandman's name wesley dodds wesley dodds there we go so wesley dodds <laughs> is is the main character of the book and he He's a pretty unassuming guy, but he's very much very much like a Batman sort of figure in the sense that he he's someone who has a lot of money, seems unassuming, but in his off time, in his after hours, he puts and funnels resources into his crime fighting. And that's essentially what the story is about. It's him dealing with various sensationalist super criminals in that early 19 or, or that late 1930s era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, the other big know. element of the series is the other main character, Diane Belmont, his love interest. 
she's basically the daughter of a district attorney, I think. And so somehow their paths, her her path cross, crosses with Wesley's path, path early on, and they end up uh, getting into a, a romantic relationship with each other. And you also get to see throughout the whole series how their relationship develops. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's a book that, or rather it's a trope that has existed for a really long time to the point where even when you do retro comics today, they they play around with that idea. And I, I think the most famous version of that female uh, character dynamic is Lois Lane, right? Where you have this spark plug of a news reporter who goes around and acts as you know, Superman's supporting cast or something like that, or one of the supporting cast members. And she's she's kind of a fire plug and she goes out there and because of her help, um, it, it helps Superman to solve whatever the crime is. And it's usually kind of tongue in cheek, but in Sandman Mystery Theater, it's done in a way that is more serious it's taken more seriously it's it's diane is treated with a lot of respect i'd say exactly exactly they they take away that element of she's just a dame she doesn't know what she's talking about (laughs) 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 gents it's that time of the month again she's just acting crazy (laughs) you know stuff like that you know yeah um often in those old comics they tend to be even though i'm sure at the time, they were like, look how progressive we are. She's She's got a job that she can do almost as good as a man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that, where, yeah. you know, again, they think they're doing a good job. They think they're being really progressive, but it's still just drenched in sexism. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, this this take on Sandman Mystery Theater is one that, like you said, it treats her with respect and it takes it seriously. So um, instead of her, you know, bumbling into uh, uh, the the evil supervillain's plan or whatever, she's she's got skills and talents and ingenuity all her own that make her very capable. So she's going in there and she's not she's not playing the part the of damsel in distress exactly. over and over again. Exactly, exactly. So that in and of itself is kind of interesting. Um, but I, I think we can talk about that a little more when we get uh, into the the more specific, like, uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, not impact, but the originality of the work. But right, yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, we've talked about the art, we've talked about the writing, and I, I did want to mention what you just said, which is the coloring, which to this day, it, it I guess one could argue that there is an uneasiness that comes with the coloring. Maybe that's the point, but... It is pretty grotesque. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say the coloring is all bad, but I definitely think that there is a lot of bad coloring in the comic. Mm. It's like there are some pages that I look at which are totally fine, but then every so often I'll see something where it just makes me scratch my head why the decision was made to color something this weird sickly green or strange shade of pink for some reason like it doesn't really seem to fit the tone very well and the colors just tend to be garish often 
Yeah. yeah. His his browns and yeah. greens in particular consistently look out of place and unpleasant. And I'm not convinced that he was intentionally trying to make me sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say it's interesting because it's very different from your conventional coloring. Um, it's it's like you said, it really focuses on these weird pinks and weird greens. It, it kind of reminds me of like a Zack Snyder film where everything <laughs> has that sepia tinge to it, except in Sandman Mystery Theater, it feels like the tinge is all green or like a hue of green. Yeah. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, and it's not just objects or things in the background, but sometimes I think he's trying to do something with the lighting, but mm. he ends up coloring people's skin weird colors sometimes, and it, that just looks it just looks off-putting. Like, yeah. I still think that yeah. Guy Davis's line art is incredible. It's just I wish the coloring were better, or heck, if we had a black and white version of it, it'd be totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere out there in a perfect universe the this series would have done so well they could have recreated it with a, a a a noir version you know how they do that sometimes where they do oh, the noir yeah. edition where it's just black and white <laughs> yeah like why is there a, a batman hush noir edition that's not a noir comic yeah yeah it doesn't need to be noir <laughs> <laughs> so dumb really dumb yeah one thing i will say I don't know if it's something that they do very often, but um, in terms of the craft that I do enjoy is whenever you get to the the, the act introduction in each issue, he yeah. always does these two-page spreads. Yep. And yep. those are so fun to look at. <laughs> yeah. it's Those are such great designs. Like, it's a two-page spread, but only, like, the top half of the spread is one image. And then on the bottom half of the of both pages you have you know two tiers of panels which really works because it like does a great job giving you that money shot to establish the opening of the issue but then you know you go straight into the story so there's still a density to it to what you're reading i love yeah. that yeah 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 guy davis man one of my favorite artists of all time i think he's a true craftsman like his architecture and his sense of place is incredible. And that's especially meaningful for a story that's a period piece. He doesn't have to rely on photo reference, but he actually draws from his own imagination, which is pretty pretty wild. His character designs are excellent. He eschews the traditional superhero mentality of only drawing beautiful people, like we were saying. Instead, he draws believable people. Like, the character acting is top-notch. And I, I remember reading in the Modern Masters book, he had some comments about what people were saying at the time about his art. Because definitely there are plebeians who, who didn't like his art. And I, I definitely yeah. remember, even when I first discovered the comic, uh, I was late to the party. I didn't actually read SMT while it was being serialized because when it first came out i was definitely too young for it um because i was like 10 years old and this ain't really appropriate for a 10 year old <laughs> so i no, I didn't not in the get, yeah i didn't get into smt until i was in college when i found one of those the, the local store had a pack of the first four issue arc 
and it was like one or two bucks so i was like i'll give this a try because i'd been reading a bunch of vertigo stuff in general and after that i uh got blown away and tracked down the rest of it as best as i could so i was already like in my probably about 20 when i first read it but i remember showing it to some friends um and going on internet forums where we talked about comics at the time to sing the praises of this book and people were pretty unimpressed and basically crapping on the art too which kind of made me mad but it seemed like plebeians just didn't like his art specifically how he drew people and in the interview davis himself actually said that some higher-ups at dc said he was drunk they said he was drawing diane too fat and they asked him to make her thinner <laughs> and <laughs> he was also told that he didn't draw attractive women <laughs> yeah 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 but then in the interview he he does laugh while he's sharing that anecdote and he also adds that nobody said anything about how quote everybody had potato heads and looked like <laughs> mole people <laughs> the way he drew them <laughs> right right so he's he's got a sense of humor man he's not upset or too angry about it i don't think and he acknowledges that he draws a certain way and you either like it or you don't take it or leave it man and i definitely take it because like you were exactly. saying earlier he draws his people to be believable people they're not all uh the peak perfection of human idealism they're mm-hmm. actually people that you could imagine seeing in real life all shapes and all sizes not everybody looks like a supermodel i mean wesley himself he's kind of a frumpy looking dude exactly exactly like i said he i don't i don't remember if he's supposed to be like a little older than the other superheroes that i think he is yeah yeah so from what i remember guy davis draws him in a way that highlights the fact that he is a little older than these other characters. He's he's not necessarily at the peak prime of his life. But even if that's the case, you could also imagine that him being at his peak wouldn't be, you know, abs on abs or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. And Guy Davis's overall sense of page design and storytelling is impeccable. I really like his dream sequences in particular. I think those are outstanding anytime wesley has a nightmare or a dream of some sort um it's just a chance for guy davis to really cut loose and draw some horrific stuff while doing mm. a an impressive page design i think His that dream sequences are haunting yeah they really <laughs> that's, are that's the only way i can describe them actually we we forgot to mention the sandman tie-in like how this kind of ties into neil gaiman's sandman I think that was part of uh, Matt Wagner's pitch, actually, when he was trying to sell DC on the idea of doing a Golden Age Sandman revival, was that, hey, not only do we already have this character with a name that's associated with one of our biggest comics, we can actually tie it in to to Sandman. (laughs) Like, if you read uh, Sandman Midnight Theater, that helps explain how Morpheus ends up where he is in the beginning of Sandman. And then, mm. like, the whole thing about Wesley having these dreams over and over, or these nightmares, it's implied that he's getting these from Morpheus um, mm. so he can, you know, take the proper course of action during his adventures. So, there, yeah, it's it's not... You don't really need to know anything about Neil Gaiman's Sandman, but it it's there if you see it, and you can have fun with it if you like uh, the Neil Gaiman book, too. 
Yeah, yeah. It's definitely clever. It's, I think, growing up in an age of the superhero crossover, and, and you know, we might be in the second or third era of that where we, we've seen, we're seeing that process put onto onto film, right? Where you have all this connectivity and world building with crossovers. Um, but to see a version of it done in such a serious way with Sandman Mystery Theater, where, yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's just something that treats it with absolute severity and realism, I guess. That's mm. the only way that I can really describe it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a version of that that I don't think we had seen up to this point where even, even in the movies, all we're seeing in terms of crossovers is maybe a slightly more sophisticated version of, oh, I hate you because you're doing this and you happen to be the thing that gets in my way of getting that. So, you know, <laughs> misunderstandings and now we're crossing paths and now we're going to have a brief conversation and we're back on the same side. <laughs> teammates. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you say Martha? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That would not happen in Sandman Mystery Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Did you yeah. say Martha? Who's Martha? <laughs> a couple other comments about Davis's art. I think when you flip through a, the comic, it seems kind of dense because often there are a lot of panels and plenty of dialogue and narration. But I do think that when you actually read it, it's only dense in the good ways. His panels are packed with evocative details, but they're never cluttered to the point where they're hard to comprehend. He really excels at establishing a sense of place and atmosphere. Even when he's just drawing two people sitting around or standing and having a conversation in an office or at a park or something, it's he still makes it engaging. Like It's still fun to look at and read. And then when he does do more elaborate page layouts or splash pages, those are just exciting. Like what we were saying earlier about those, his stylistic trait in this series where he, you know, every issue has that opening two page spread with the credits and everything. Like it's always just good stuff, man. Mm -hmm. What did you think about the, some of the fill in art, the, the stories that were drawn by the other artists? Were there, did any of those stand out to you at all? Like, did you like most of it, or were there some that were not too good in your eyes? I think even though some of the fill-in artists don't quite live up to Guy Davis, I do think overall they still maintained a aesthetic consistency. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. Whenever you read and you have a fill-in artist, it's not so jarring as going from, you know, like a cave painting to, you know, like a T-Mac or something. I, I'm sorry <laughs> to keep bringing that guy up, but, you know, just I just need an extreme example. Extreme example. <laughs> Shouldn't that be Rob Liefeld? Okay, fine. Rob Liefeld, you know. <laughs> so at, at least there's a consistency that exists there. But, um, you know, 
there's a universe again a universe out there that exists where enough editorial people would have gotten involved and they would have been like we're tired of your potato looking people and we want you know really great looking idealized superhero people so we're gonna get jim lee to do the next couple of issues that would have been i would have just like scratched my head i would have been like what the heck (laughs) what's happening yeah yeah i have a question for you one of the arcs in the story the second arc of the series actually was called the face and that's the one with the chinese characters Mm. That one kind of bugged me, and I don't know if it stood out to you, but to me, it, it just seemed like the guy who drew that drew the Asians like actual yellow menaces. They were even kind of colored like yellow menaces. I don't know if that was intentional to serve as a commentary on the era, but I don't think it was. I think I think that was just how That's the guy drew, drew Asian people, yeah. and I thought that was a pretty bad choice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at those pages now and it's it's a tough it's a tough line to straddle cuz on the one hand maybe in terms of just how people dressed in that time period or in that era maybe there was just something about it that was that's still uncomfortable to this day but yeah there's a chance that it could be like the fact that they all walk around with like Fu Manchu's uh-huh. Is, they got really slinty eyes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. Again, maybe that was just what was in fashion in there in the time period. So I, I don't know if I go that far overboard with like putting. Okay, okay. Too much it's, of it's not racist, Albert. It. It's just the 1930s. <laughs> totally normal. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> If if you're trying to capture people in the 1930s and that's just how they happen to dress, then <laughs> there's not much that I can really say to that, right? Because <laughs> there's a version of this that could be really racist, yeah, right? True that. Like, true we'll, that. Let's talk Will Eisner level racist. Oof. Exactly. Or that one issue of or that one Tintin story where he goes to Africa or something. Yeah, exactly. There there are definitely things wrong with that, right? Um, but I don't think, I don't know if that's necessarily, well, no, let me put it this way. It's clear that he wasn't making a caricature of these people. Um, I think he was just trying to draw them in a way that was as accurate as he saw it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they're nowhere near as yellow as Shang-Chi in the 1970s. So there's that. That's true. It's. (laughs) It's funny though because if you look at the the actual issues, like the single issues of those, mm-hmm. the the coloring in those, they they are colored like yellow menaces, like like a Shang Chi comic. But in the trade paperback, I think they uh, actually softened up the color. Yeah, yeah. And for this podcast, I do have the uh, the digital versions up, so just so I can look at it while I'm talking here. Mm. And yeah, I'd say their skin tone is maybe not exact to to what you know the the white people's skin tone is, but it's not ridiculous or anything either. Yeah, yeah. So, so there we go. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was curious about what you had to say about that one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to say about the writing when we talk about the craft of writing. I I do think Matt Wagner and Stephen T. Siegel are both good writers, especially on SMT. I'd say what stands out to me is that their plots are all intriguing. SMT is a crime comic, but it's rarely concerned with the actual mystery solving element of it. Because mm, mm, mm. often we know who done it pretty early on. Instead, the stories tend to be about the ramifications of the crime. Like, why yeah. did it happen? How does it yeah. involve the people? Or how does it affect the people who are caught up in it? So, like, those are the kinds of questions that the stories explore. And then Wagner and Siegel also write pretty engaging dialogue. But even mm. beyond all that, beyond all the all the surface elements of the plot in that element of the story, I think that they've crafted thing crafted tales that worked on multiple levels. Because not only do you have dynamic plots and engaging characters, but you also have plenty of meaningful social commentary and subtext. Mm. The structure of the series, it's always done up until the last two episode uh, issues when they got canceled. Uh, the structure of the series was that they would have four issue arcs. So it gave the series this solid, reliable rhythm to it. And I think each individual story is pretty satisfying in and of itself. But uh, not only do you get like a fun or I wouldn't, maybe fun's the wrong word to use in a series that explores the dark underbelly of humanity, but you get something that is very engaging in terms of its plot, but you also have characters that are believable and characters that grab you, but you also mm-hmm. uh, see the main characters grow and change over the course of 70 issues. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's something that that really stands out the way that they were able to develop a series where they could do these different things where they can tell stories about, you know, they're basically like pulpy crime noir stories. So they could have their fun writing that kind of stuff, but then they've also got this, uh, the character writing, you know, they can engage the reader with how well they write these fully developed characters. And then, on top of that, there's also this social commentary to give you, you know, additional layers of depth to, to you know, you're, you're not just reading it just to be entertained, but it also actually makes you think about something in real life. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about the mystery of it all, though. That and I do think that's a good, that's a good thing to mention. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like a lot of the times with mysteries, a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy focused on the mystery itself. It's the idea of it, it's the idea of whatever the revelation has to be, it has to be something that wows me, right? Because that's the point of a mystery is all the things, all the pieces and elements have to fall into place so it feels like it's a genuine puzzle that's being unfolded before you it seems like a lot of people want to be blown away by the revelation but they also want it to be done in a way where they can connect the dots and see that it still makes sense logically yeah 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 but 
I think the thing, there's several things that's hard about that. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that I don't appreciate it when a good mystery plays out like that. Because mm-hmm. there are definitely good mysteries that I can enjoy where when it when it's all laid out before you, it's like, wow, that was that was fun, right? It was like, okay, I get it. The now that after the fact, even if I didn't solve it at the time, once I'm sitting there at the conclusion of it, you can look at all the pieces and you can kind of froth at the mouth and <laughs> like pick over the pieces for hours, if not days, after you've already uh, consumed the story. Yeah. But the thing that's hard about that is there are only so many ways that you can do that. There are only so many times that the butler can be the guy that did it before <laughs> it gets old, right? right? And there's only so many ways that you can reinvent the the mystery wheel so many times. So I do think that for a series that has mystery in the title, for it to downplay the mystery aspect and not really try to give the reader a new mystery every time where uh you know a new elaborate mystery every time where you where he where steven t siegel or matt wagner as the writers have to do all this extra work in order to you know seed the right uh clues or whatever um by focusing more on the ramifications of the crime and the character interactions it allows them to get away from that mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. just focus on storytelling, which I do think is a great credit to them as writers. Um, so, yeah. you know, we talk about people that don't like the series because the art, I could also see a bunch of people who read a series like this and go, the mysteries weren't even that tough or they weren't even that good. What's, what's the big, yeah. you know, like it ended up the, at the end of the, 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 the story arc, the, the mysterious person wasn't even anyone that we knew, uh, you know, it was just a random killer. What, what does that do? You know, what's the yeah, point of that? Yeah. It totally misses the point of the, uh, the medic, uh, the, the subtext of whatever is happening in the story. So mm. I, again, I, I think it's to their credit that they decided not to go the route of every, Every week we're gonna do a villain of the week, and every story we're gonna have have to find new elaborate ways of doing these mysteries. Um, it kind of reminds me of Sherlock Holmes, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, right? Mm-hmm. Where Sherlock Holmes eventually became like an anchor around his neck. He just got so sick and tired of writing that guy. Yeah. Where eventually he he, he killed I think him. He tried to kill him off multiple times, but people just kept harassing him and eventually he just had to keep writing it yeah that's um, that's rough fans are dumb fandom gone wrong for sure yeah he was dealing with this hundreds of years before social media too (laughs) (laughs) imagine that but yeah that's that's all i wanted to say about craft and whatnot here's a question for you what did you think about the covers for the series I think right now, all these years later, I look at those covers um, and I do think there's something, I, I was going to say iconic. I don't think iconic is the right word. I do think that if you're going to look at it in terms of branding at, at whatever the Vertigo Vertigo brand was, I do think it fits pretty well with the other books that were coming out. Because if you look these at Sandman- photo covers. Yeah. 
but they're also kind of like collages, right? Where yeah. it's taking a lot of different imagery to put a cover on on each issue, and it's not necessarily something that you immediately get when you're looking at it. It it takes a couple of seconds, if not minutes, of looking and pondering. And you even then you might not really fully understand what it is you're looking at, but there's a abstract expressionistic element to the covers that I think are pretty present and prevalent in a lot of the early Vertigo titles. Like Sandman, the 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 Neil Gaiman Sandman series did quite a few of these covers like this as well, from what I remember. Dave McKean, yeah. Yeah, Dave McKean, exactly. I think the thing with Dave McKean's uh, covers compared to Gideon Wilson and Richard Bruning's covers on SMT is that these SMT covers often used photographs of real people. And I think, at least me, this, this might just be my personal taste coming out, but I felt like the photo covers that used objects and didn't use real people looked better in my mind. Um, for, there's just something, I don't know, I, f- I find it kind of goofy to have a, a real person on the cover of a comic book sometimes. I don't know why. That's that, that's really just a Drew thing. <laughs> okay, well, uh, duly noted. That's, uh, <laughs> I Hey, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then the only other thing I really have to say about the craft is just to briefly discuss the ending because the comic got canceled and the last arc breaks from the usual structure of four issues and it's only two issues. So you can tell that it feels a little bit rushed and that the creators were trying to cram everything they could just to give Wesley and Diane a proper send-off. I don't think it's a bad ending, not by any means. I think it is a good ending. But it just makes you kind of wistful for what they could have accomplished had they reached the endpoint in a more natural way. Yeah, I don't know. It just felt. <sighs> it's disappointing. I was gonna say it just felt rushed because it just felt like they were doing all this stuff and then all of a sudden, from what I remember, they they had these circumstances that afforded them or drove them to go to Europe. So the last couple issues were just. Hey, we're gonna go to Europe, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. where it, that's that's where it ends. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's not the the main thing that I remember about it was just that, just how abrupt it felt. And granted, I don't blame them for that. That's not their fault. Like well, circumstances were outside of their control, and they just finished it. I'm sure that they had something in mind in terms of what the ending was going to be and they just tried so their too. best yeah they tried I their agree. best to to make that the ending that they wanted uh and and again it's not necessarily their fault that they got the rug pulled from under underneath them you know comics will break your heart man yeah yeah <sighs> all right you want to move on to the originality yeah let's talk about the originality which is our next criteria. And by that, we're just asking, is the comic creative and imaginative? Does it have something meaningful to say? Hmm. And I want to start off by pointing out again that Wagner's and Siegel's stories here, they take place in the late 30s. 
And yeah, they do have something meaningful to say. Each story tackles at least one major piece of social commentary that's not only relevant to the 30s, but the way that they wrote the stories, man, they're always written in this way so as so as to be relevant in the mid 90s, uh, you know, the time period that these comics originally came out, but they're also still relevant today in 2023. So it's like the stories, fictionally speaking, take place in the 30s, but they came out in the 90s and they were still pertinent. They were still talking about topics that were relevant then, and those topics are still relevant now. And I think that's because the creators focused on telling stories that examined people, you know? They were about humanity mm. and things that, that uh, I guess, sadly, are just timeless issues. Yeah. Like when yeah. you think about some of the, I guess you could, you could use the scare quotes if you want. But when you when you think about how some of these stories talk about socially relevant or socially conscious topics, like some of the things that are covered throughout the run of SMT are things like war profiteering, homosexuality, the treatment of minorities, abortion, poverty, class divisions, attaining physical beauty and perfection the immigrant experience and just a whole lot of other stuff man so like it's all these things that you would see make sense from the point of view of what the characters in the story are experiencing but they're also things that were relevant to readers in the 90s but here 30 years later they're still just as relevant as any time exactly exactly I was going to jump in on that, but yeah, it just feels like if this had been written today, I could see a bunch of people just dogpiling on it and getting mad at it for being woke or being, (laughs) you know, or trying to drive home this agenda. But if anything, this is sort of, this is the type of comic that you can point to that indicates that, hey, all that stuff that you've been complaining about since forever, the the ills of uh, society, those things have been around. And the fact that we're still doing stories about it in 2023 just goes to show that we've been talking about it all since then and nothing's, it hasn't changed that much or mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. it hasn't changed in a significant enough way. So maybe we needed to hear more about it. Maybe we still do need stories that sort of break this down and examine these things in, in new lights. Yeah. These, yeah. These social issues. So technology yeah, I, might have advanced, but people are just as terrible as ever. Exactly. Exactly. Put that in a fortune cookie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in terms of originality, I maybe it's not the most original, but it's also still kind of pretty original in the sense that they took this old character they made him contemporary they gave it a realistic aesthetic and then they also applied they applied i guess commentary to it that made sense for the time that the comic took place but it also made sense for the time that the comics were being published Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i i do think there's definitely something worth discussing within the the matter of the the comics itself 
to the point where there's so much to dissect about in all these stories and you 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 just listed out just this entire plethora of things that they cover and yeah it's it's kind of like a like a tv show or something where every arc covers some other different aspect of what's wrong with society this week (laughs) yeah exactly in a way it kind of is like that it's like almost if this were a tv serial it would kind of be like that where you'd have each episode would just be a different thing that was wrong with society today (laughs) yeah yeah but it's not simplistic about it either it's it's not just a matter of like i mean maybe in some ways it is in that hey how about we not treat immigrants like crap or hey how about we not like murder uh people who are gay or Mm -hmm, things like mm -hmm. that right but there's definitely more of a nuance in how it's presented to you in other than just something as simple as um hey let's not do that thing that so many of us are very easily capable of doing when we get into a mob (laughs) yeah yeah i guess in that regard you could say that maybe the moral takeaways or lessons from the stories are pretty straightforward assuming that the reader has a sense of morality but the the execution of it and the way that the story not only uh, conveys that message but actually what the characters go through and what they learn and experience like that's the part that gives it that added level of complexity because the characters themselves are really well developed and complex people especially Diane and Wesley like mm. let's talk about Diane for a minute cuz i think uh in particular she stands out to me one of the things that you mentioned a few minutes ago was the comparison to old Lois Lane comics from, I don't know, like the golden age or whatever, and how a lot of the female characters from that era were kind of like damsels in distress for the most or part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and of course we acknowledge that this comic was written in the nineties. It just takes place in the thirties. The story takes place in the thirties. So you can, you, I guess you could make the argument that the writers could have, you know, brought their own modern biases into a story about the past. And maybe, maybe the idea of a woman like Diane actually living in the thirties is kind of fantastical, but I don't know. I didn't, it's hard. It's hard for me to say, cause it's, it's not like I lived through that era and exactly, I could exactly. point to like real examples of people, but Diane in particular, she comes across as a free spirit, right? She's got a social conscience and a sense of independence that you don't necessarily associate with women in that American women in that era. Like she would probably be considered very progressive for her time. We see her try to reject the common prejudices of her era, specifically things like racism and other social values, um, just things, things like, like her professional ambitions, right? She's, she wants to be a published novelist. And, you know, that means she's a woman who wants to work with her hands and and use her own intelligence and creativity to tell stories, as opposed to just looking for 
a man to marry and take care of her so she can, you know, just be a homemaker or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you see those things and you could look at her and be like, oh, that's just a, a stereotypical imaginary superwoman who who can, you know, be independent minded and have all these ambitions and dreams and nothing can stop her. But no, that's not really the case because we see a lot of her struggles within the story. It's not that easy for her to become a published novelist. You know, that's something that she dreams about and works towards, but she keeps making very incremental progress throughout the series. Um, another thing that shows her complexity, she she loves children, right? She re- really loves children and even wanted to have a child with Wesley once they got serious in their relationship. But she actually willingly chose to get an abortion because Wesley didn't want to marry her and she just wanted to be traditionally married to the father of her child. So she she made that decision even though the choice hurt her and haunted her. Like it, it's very complex, you know, like these different yeah. things that you don't often see in a superhero comic or just a, a DC Marvel comic in general. Like these are characters that you can imagine the kinds of emotions and travails that they undergo how hard it is for them to like struggle and scrap through all the different and difficult choices that they got to make in life and then face the ramifications of those choices mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's all just part of the i guess the complexity and the nuance of this more modern storytelling that they're applying to these older characters right mm-hmm. so it's like you were saying it's it's more than just the fact that she wants to it's more than the fact that you know she, she just wants to find a good man that's going to solve all her problems because that's definitely not the case i mean <laughs> yeah. she still wants to be in a relationship but there's just so much more to consider um within that yeah. dynamic and they're they're equals in their relationship exactly. And it's they're reasonable things to take into consideration in terms of what the difficulties of their relationship are, right? It's mm-hmm. her it's her dealing with her sense of self and identity and the dreams and aspirations that she's facing, which is something that they never would have considered back in the golden age of comics. Lois Lane never would have really <laughs> thought about that, right? And I maybe this is telling of just where my sensibilities are now that I'm as old as I am, but it's a version of this story that works for me. I don't know if a modern, you know, if this series was written today, I don't know if the version of Diane would be, I don't know, like, super aggressive or super hostile or anything like Mm -hmm. that but um i i I, hey you know what i'm open to seeing what that looks like right i I think hopefully if they're able to take modern considerations and apply it to the book in a way that is reflective and that allows me to see what their self-examination looks like and consider Mm -hmm. what they're talking about i think Mm -hmm. that's ideally how i'd want to read it right i I certainly don't want anything where you know diane goes out there and you know 
um, bumps off uh, Wesley because you know who needs him or whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's got to there's got to be real considerations taken into place. Um, but maybe that's just a thing where I'm I might just be too aged out to understand. Mm. You know, modern modern people. Uh, <laughs> We're relics, man. We are ancient fossils here. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, I do think. Well, now, now I'm kind of curious what uh, you know a modern comics reader would would think if they read Sandman Mystery Theater and they process the relationship dynamics between Wesley and Diane. Like, would it be realistic to them? Would it be unrealistic? Uh, would it be far fetched? Uh, would they ask themselves questions of, you know? Why does she allow certain things to happen? Why does he allow certain things to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, things of that matter. Yeah, that's a good question because I do think that as we're getting older, I'm seeing a lot more uh, younger people comment about comics, whether that's just on social media or just younger critics, uh, other podcasts. You know, people, I'm thinking of people in their maybe like their early 20s. Um, maybe even up to around like their thirties, heck even younger than that. But I do question or wonder like how their sensibilities may have shaped how they, they might feel something like this. Cause I feel like recently, at least in the past couple of years, it just feels like a lot of people in that younger age group don't really respect or value the comics that we like and the, you know, the, mm. even the creators that, that we tend to appreciate. Like it's, mm. it's real easy for them to just like, crap on grant morrison comic or whatever you know or alan moore whereas yeah. like for, i feel like for people of our generation you know we're in our early 40s now like we tend to revere those guys you know like we may not like or love everything they do but as far as their comics go yeah like can't deny that they're just all-time classics yeah yeah absolutely but again it's it's just a thing where i don't know maybe it's 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 a situation where i'm i'm open enough to hear what they have to say like modern audiences and discuss it and to see if it's there's any merit to any of the criticisms like i yeah there's definitely there's definitely people around that have dumb takes because in the age of the internet so much of it is so sensational that i don't even know if there are takes well okay there are definitely sincere takes but it feels like there are more dumb takes just for the sake of sensationalism yeah than there are sincere takes. agreed agreed yeah. yeah i'd be willing like yeah it's like you were saying i think i'd be willing to engage in a rational discourse about works like that with people who feel differently but people who are have genuine to be, about it people yeah it have to be genuine are, exactly i'm open to it who, you know exactly people who are willing to have good faith conversations about it for the sake of examining art with sincerity yeah if they're just gonna dump on it from the get-go can't really have a conversation yeah if they're there just to you know get the get the views and the likes then that's not a real conversation. There's there's nothing that we're really bringing to this. <laughs> yeah. 
But speaking about their speaking about the relationship between Diane and Wesley, I do think one of the biggest elements of SMT is their romance because SMT yeah, it's a pulpy noir crime comic, but at its heart, I think you could actually say this is a romance comic. Hmm. The romance between Wesley Dodds and Diane Belmont, I think that's got to be one of the best out there in terms of any big two comic. Maybe just in terms of long-running comics in general. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say, I do think theirs is probably the healthiest example of a relationship in comics mm. yeah. that we've seen. <laughs> because they communicate. <laughs> yeah, they communicate. <laughs> They're not cheating on each other all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, they didn't make a deal with the devil in order to save one of their parents by <laughs> making them forget their relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you it's know, true, regular stuff. Yeah. <laughs> relationship stuff. <laughs> it's true. I cannot dispute that fact. Yeah. To watch their relationship grow and develop over the course of 70 issues feels like a real journey. And it's rare to find a fictional relationship depicted with this level of maturity. Mm, the two characters, mm. they deal with all sorts of adult issues together. Like Their relationship feels so realistic. It's got peaks and valleys. You got times where one of them is upset at the other one or they've got something you know that, that really bothers one of them and they have to talk about it or work through some kind of problem but neither of them are perfect or idealized people it's not like they get together and then everything is just all sunshine and roses moving forward they each have their own flaws but they just somehow manage to work things out through honest communication and humility so i think that's something that really stood out to me to me that's probably the heart of the comic is their romance when you consider that within the confines of the story, the series begins in 1938 and ends on New Year's Day, 1940, it feels like a whole lot has happened, not only in terms of all the adventures they've had, but also in terms of the ups and downs of a mature relationship. So mm-hmm. I, f- I found that element of the series really satisfying. We don't really see that too much in superhero comics i mean i feel like the only other superhero comic i can think of off the top of my head right now that has a a relationship that i guess is covered over a long span of time and feels decently satisfying would be something like invincible and mark and adam eve but even that even then that story their story i don't feel like it feels as mature and as realistic as Wesley and Diane. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, I mean, it's probably the most flushed out version of a modern romance, but... It's still got a lot of the melodramatic elements, too. Exactly. And the superheroics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, yeah. I think melodramatics is absolutely right on the money. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind would be Nexus and Sundra from Nexus. But again, like that's another one where I feel like 
because the stories of Sandman Mystery Theater are so grounded, the problems that Wesley and Diane face are also really grounded. And it's not yeah. that you can it's not that you can't have a good romance in a science fiction story or something with more fantasy in it, but I think because this one in particular is so grounded in reality, it makes their relationship feel more real too and the characters mm. feel more real. Mm. Uh, there were a couple of arcs that I did enjoy. But they're probably the ones that I remember the most clearly. Yeah. So one of them being the brute, and it's got single think, dad energy, man. It's got single dad energy, but there's definitely a tragedy to it. Yeah, that too. <laughs> That's, I, and I I think the thing that I noticed about both the stories is, granted, there's a lot of tragedy to go around in all of the stories but um the phantom of the fair is the underlying story there is just the the story of a gay man living in you know the 1930s in a world that where he can't essentially exist in the open and as a result it causes him to go to dangerous places in order to you know find love and ultimately leads to his his death mm, um, yeah. Th- uh, yeah but th- those two just had there was something gut-wrenching about the uh the tragedy of it all um in the brute yeah there's a single dad who who's just trying his best to take care of this little girl and he's trying to live the best life that he can you know just working whatever jobs trying to stay out of trouble but just because they're in the era that they're in, they don't have the resources. He ends up putting her in danger. He ends up going into working for dubious characters and things just all, all go wrong. Um, yeah. The yeah, tragedy it's, of it's, it all is like, it feels inevitable, but you can't help but keep on watch, keep on reading. Yeah, yeah. You you hope that he finds a way to make it work so that he and his daughter can have a life together that's not terrible. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it does get pretty heavy. Like this is definitely a comic. You need a you need to have a certain constitution for it because I I, I could definitely see people not wanting to read it just because it gets into some of this really heavy stuff with exactly. you know, all the all the sexual violence and just the worst aspects of humanity on display yeah 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 another story that stood out to me it wasn't necessarily one of the more uh tragic ones or anything but there was this one arc towards the end i think it was just called the city that was one that took place in a single day but each of the four issues was told from the perspective of a different character so you kind of just see their activities throughout that day um and occasionally they kind of cross paths with each other in minor ways but that one was fun because you get a chance to spend time with some of the characters that aren't that don't usually get a big focus on like the lieutenant lieutenant burke or is it detective burke but anyway the main cop guy He's like this foul mouth uh, 
dude who really is trying to do his job, but he's always at odds with Sandman. But you get to see a little bit of him uh, and just see some development through that story. And it's just a fun way to spend some time with the character that is usually relegated to a few panels here and there in every other story. Then there was that one issue with, uh, shoot, what was Wesley Dodd's butler's name again? I, for, I forgot his name. Oh, geez. I, I'm terrible with names. I mean, I forgot Wesley Dodd's. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm probably not the, the right person to ask. But anyway, there was a whole issue with him uh, tracking, Leslie trying to Humphreys. track down his... Humphreys, thank you. Humphreys. Yes. <laughs> yeah. See, you got a good memory. I have Google up, so... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So Humphreys is tracking down his daughter because she's involved with... I forget. I think I think it was like a, commie group, a communist group and to try and raise funds for their political group, she was like posing for questionable photographers mm. but that's another one that had really strong single father energy and it it stuck with me yeah 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 i i wanted to talk about that last arc with the detective there was there was something pretty fun about that in that this whole time he has this there's this contentious relationship that he has with wesley dodds and his whole thing is I guess he plays that that kind of character who who's like, I'll get you next time, Sandman. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of those yeah. where his entire story arc is just trying to he he's just trying to be a good cop and he's just trying to catch the Sandman. He's gonna try he wants to try to figure out who this guy is. And just because he's an anomaly and an oddity, and there's nothing inherently bad about this detective except for the fact that what he wants just happens to be to capture wesley and put him him away (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's a fun way of playing that dynamic that we've seen in a bunch of different ways right because he could have very easily been like a jim gordon type of cop who's like well call the batman and you know have him (laughs) come do this or that or whatever but yeah it's i i do remember that story too yeah and the fact that towards the end they ended up giving him a a romantic interest and you get to see (laughs) how he and doris get together that was pretty funny too because he's the kind of guy who's who's not very he's kind of (laughs) rough yeah he's very rough he's a rough character yeah Yeah, yeah. and and his love interest is sort of this typical 1930s lady you know she's very (laughs) proper and yeah polite and stuff it's an it's an interesting contrast to see Burke's relationship with Doris contrasted with Wesley and Diane's relationship. I feel like if the series had gone on longer, we probably could have gotten a lot more from that. But yeah, even just seeing it form towards the end was pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It's well done. It's well done. I enjoy. There's a lot to enjoy in the series. Yeah, yeah. So... You want to talk, move on to the impact of the series? Yeah. So with impact, we're just asking what sort of lasting influence did the comic have? Did it leave a mark within the DC universe, on the industry, or on pop culture? Do fans remember it with affection? Yeah. So here's the thing. I'd say that in certain circles, the this series 
did have a lot of impact. I'd say that the version of Wesley Dodds and Sandman and, you know, even his relationship with uh, Diane, 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 okay. Diane, um, like, I, I, I think in all the iterations that they've made since it's been that version of the Sandman. But the thing is, I, we, well, we talked about this earlier in the episode where the series just didn't sell well enough, you know, to the masses that they didn't even finish making, they didn't even finish collecting it in trade paperbacks several times. So that being said, I think people or, or comics fans as a whole are probably not as aware. They're like aware of the elements of Sandman mystery theater, but they might not even be aware that it is from this version of Sandman mystery theater, which is kind of a shame, you know? I don't yeah. know. How do you feel about that? It's, it feels like it's hard to say how much influence this comic actually had. Because I, th- I feel like Sandman Mystery Theater is one of those things you could point to as a Golden Age revival comic, which various companies do here and there every so often. But I think this one was probably one of the first or earliest ones to tell a sophisticated, mature story for adults. Yeah, yeah. So I could ask myself hypothetically if this comic paved the way for something like James Robinson's Starman book, which in turn helped pave the way for the JSA comic of the late 90s and 2000s. But yeah, I really don't know. It's it's hard to say, man. Like there was a story arc actually in Sandman that had a crossover with Sandman Mystery or a, a crossover with Starman and Sandman Mystery Theater. Mm-hmm. Like there was a whole story where the James Robinson Starman featured an older Wesley and Diane. You know, they're like octogenarians or something. Right. And right. and you, you get to see this scene where um the the two of them are old people, but you have you have the story that takes place in the present day interspersed with flashbacks that took place in the thirties where you, you get to see sandman in his prime and those scenes those flashback scenes were actually drawn by guy davis which was pretty cool yeah Yeah. so there's certainly some kind of connection between the books but i don't really know if you could say that you know this influenced anything or had much of an impact on dc in general yeah i mean i don't know it wouldn't surprise me if this was the tip of the spear of that movement that you were talking about, right? Where they take, it's just sad that where we eventually end up is with Jeff Johns trying to do this with every character. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, the (laughs) idea that, Oh, if you, if you like put enough spit polish on any character, you can make them cool. No, (laughs) no, you keep, you keep vibe. Okay. (laughs) Jeff, you keep vibe. (laughs) Because, yeah, I was like, even speaking of James Robinson and Starman, he also had that book, The Golden Age, which was clearly a Golden Age influenced book. But that book was probably already in development at the same time as Sandman Mystery Theater, I think, just based on what when they came out. So it's quite possible that James Robinson already had 
a lot of interest in doing these golden age revival type of stories. So yeah, I don't really know if I could say this book had much influence on any other of the golden age revival type of comics that we've seen. Like, I guess to some extent, some people still remember it because I, I do remember every so often they seem to be trying to bring back Sandman in one way or another. Like there was this one time, I want to say in the mid 2000s, Vertigo actually did another Sandman mystery theater comic. I forgot who wrote it. I want to say John Nay Reber, perhaps. I, I could so. be wrong. I believe that's who it was. Yeah, and and that comic, I remember I had that. I wasn't super impressed by it. I think I just, after I finished reading it, I just gave it away. Hmm. But recently, actually, like within the past month or two, I think, there was a new uh, DC series featuring Wesley Dodds. I think it's just called Wesley Dodds, The Sandman. And the first issue came out pretty recently. It's written by Robert Venditti. And art okay. by Riley Rosmo. Okay. So, Robert Vendetti's pretty good. Yeah. And I, ha- I haven't read it. I don't know anything about it. But it's, uh, you know, at least it's some acknowledgement that some people still remember the character. Or maybe DC's just trying to make sure they don't lose the trademark. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, regardless, it's. I think it's fair to say that in uh terms of impact it was something that where we had to we couldn't rank it nearly as high as we we would have in uh the other categories because it's it's clearly just not something that's as well known or remembered or even beloved yeah it's well known and beloved in our hearts first and foremost exactly exactly (laughs) exactly I guess if anything, if I'm just reaching for stuff, I guess I could say it's the thing that helped Guy Davis establish himself in the mainstream because after he did this, he began to get a little bit more work from DC. Like mm-hmm. there was a Phantom Stranger one shot that he did for Vertigo and that ended up getting Mike Mignola's attention and then eventually after SMT ended and he did a few other things, he he wound up with BPRD, and that was a pretty big job for him, you know? And I, I think it's, it's uh, you know, you, you kind of, like, just trace the lines, like him doing BPRD and, and developing this, and the marquee, and developing this reputation for designing horrifying creatures and, and monsters and stuff. Like maybe that's what helped him uh, get noticed by... Guillermo del Toro and and end up working in in movies and and things like that. So I guess in some way, like Guy Davis's art has never been more influential ever since he's been doing more stuff that you know more people watch. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, and one quote from his interview in Modern Masters in Davis's own words, he says. Sandman Mystery Theater is the series that taught me the most about discipline as an artist. So, mm. yeah, I mean, there you have it. The series helped him develop a reputation for being a consummate professional in terms of meeting deadlines while maintaining 
the integrity and quality of the work. And yeah. I really do think he is one of the best comic book artists that we've had. And, you know, while I'm happy that he's still getting all this other work designing monsters, which he clearly has a lot of fun doing, mm-hmm. I'm still, there's still a part of me that's sad that he left comics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's in, uh, in a perfect world, we'd get everything we wanted. So <laughs> it's just, it's unfortunate, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, you got to look for the rays of light and sunshine where you can. And as as long as he's still working and, you know, not struggling in his career, I'm I'm glad for that at least. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I'm guessing he's doing better than ever. Yeah. Yeah. At least that's what I hope. I think that's the case. Oh, well. All right. You want to go on to the book's ability to withstand the test of time? Yeah, yeah. I think we're pretty unanimous on this one. It's pretty clear that we think that these stories really do withstand the test of time. They hold up today, even outside of the context of the 90s. They're comics that we can reread over and over again moving forward in the future. Honestly, I think the fact that the comics are set in the late thirties. It gives them this kind of timeless quality. Yeah. Makes it easier so that people don't look at it and, you know, as, <laughs> Oh man, that's so out of touch. Well, it was supposed to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> people aren't going to look at this and be like, well, if he just had a smartphone on him, he could have solved the crime in two yeah, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do think what I said earlier still does kind of apply, which would be in terms of just the, uh, I guess, the gender dynamics and things that exist in this book. I'd be curious to see if, like, a younger person would have a different take on it. Like, from where I'm standing or sitting, um, I, it doesn't feel out of place. It feels normal. But, you know, yeah. I, what do I know? <laughs> so I do think it it does withstand the test of time i think it's it's something that you can read now and it's not cringy in the sense that why is it so sexist and racist you know it's not cringy in that sense but again as far as i can tell like maybe maybe it is to some people and it's something that i'm not seeing but um that's a good point. yeah but yeah. other than that I, I i will say that to to anyone who wants something um you know to to that that can withstand the test of time i would say yeah this this book as a period piece does just that yeah if there is anyone out there who is younger than us and has thoughts on sandman mystery theater reach out i'd be curious to find out what the young generation thinks of something like this yeah 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 I'm curious too. Like, don't talk to me directly because I hate people. But you know, you tell Drew and he'll tell me. <laughs> if you ever see Albert on the street, do not make eye contact with him. <laughs> he walks around with a switchblade and he will cut you. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost guaranteed. <laughs> um. Any final right. thoughts on Sandman Mystery Theater, Albert? 
Uh, I guess I would just talk about some other books that I would recommend works that I do think are, you know, for anyone who likes Sandman mystery theater, something that would scratch that same itch. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking about was from hell by Alan Moore. And I think that's something that works because it's another period piece that actually takes this older era in time, but makes it modern by adding contemporary commentary about the nature of man. And also mm -hmm. by taking, it's a story that takes this period and does something to make it seem more in line with modern contemporary aesthetics as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one. Do you have anything? Um, well, I mentioned the James Robinson Starman earlier. I think that could possibly be a good recommendation. Other than that, my other picks, I think they're good comics. I don't know if I feel as strongly about them as recommendations. So I'll see what if you have any thoughts on them. But one of them is actually Powers by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Avon Oming. I think I just had this in mind because I didn't mention it when we talked about Gotham Central in that episode. Um, Powers is, uh, I guess you could call it kind of a, a police procedural, but it's also a superhero comic. It's definitely very much in that in that noirish vein. Um, but I think what it has in common in terms of uh, its aims or sensibilities with SMT is that Powers is a series that I do think tries to have something to say about society. Like there's definitely social commentary in it and examinations of humanity through the lens of its seedy underbelly and the crimes that people perpetrate upon each other, except in powers, a lot of those crimes tend to be committed by super powered felons. So mm. it's definitely a lot more on the fantastical side, probably uh, a lot more crass at times as well, but um, I don't know. That could be something worth checking out if, if you haven't read it. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is the 1980s question comic from Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan. And I picked that one just because it's another example of creators taking an older property, uh, the question being a character created by Steve Ditko in the late 60s. And then, you know, 20 years later, 20 something years later, creators do a more, I guess you could say harder edged and a darker version of it. Uh, not darker in the sense of just being grim dark for the sake of shock value, but I think I'm just trying to convey that they're trying to do, they were doing a more like adult oriented take on the concept of the question, even though their version of the question is actually very different from the Steve Ditko version. It, it's probably about as different from the Steve Ditko question as SMT is from the Golden Age Sandman. Mm, right, right. Mm. I think those are good choices. They make a lot of sense. And, you know, even if 
um, <laughs> the the reasoning for powers comes from a place where you felt a little guilty because you didn't bring it up last <laughs> week. I still think it works. So I think so. I think so. Yeah. It's definitely still a crime comic. It's a crime oriented exactly. comic, and most exactly. of those crimes are also not centered on whodunits, but they're centered yeah. around why those crimes happened and what happens to the characters that are involved with those crimes. Exactly. You're all right, then. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> One final question for you, Albert. Are there any other Golden Age comic book characters that you'd love to see get the SMT treatment? Um, I think there are a lot, but I, I know there are some that I've seen in the past where I've never got a chance to read it. So you mentioned earlier that Matt Wagner initially wanted to do a Dr. Midnight. And I think he did get to do a three-issue Dr. Midnight yeah. miniseries at one point. I think but... it was with John K. Snyder. Like, the art looks great in that. And I've yeah. never been able to find it, but I've always wanted to read it. Exactly. I've always found, like, two out of the three issues, which is the most infuriating thing ever. But Is it because uh, somebody you know, always takes issue one? I don't even know, man. It's <laughs> just, it's it's, you know... The universe is just a cruel place sometimes. It is, man. It is. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, if it was something more personal to me, I don't know. I, I feel like they every so often they trot out a lot of these characters. Um, so we always see in every generation of writers some new iteration or contemporized take on these characters. So I don't know. Um, what if... What if somebody gave Namor the SMT treatment? I think that'd be pretty cool. That would be, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, well, if we we're talking about across all books, then <laughs> like Marvel, <laughs> too. I I'm sure there'd be a lot that I could work with or that I'd be interested in. Oh, jeez. Now I'm trying to think. I mean, I SMT did give us Our Man, the Crimson Avenger. Yeah. Black Hawk. I... I think the thing is I'm, I'm trying to keep it strictly to the golden age heroes. And I don't think I know enough about the golden age heroes to come up with someone that I love enough where I would want to see like, you know, come on, uh, man. Come on, that. man. You, you know, Batman is Johnny a golden age hero. Johnny sorrow. I would want to see <laughs> someone do a Johnny sorrow comic. Cause I always thought he looked cool. Johnny sorrow does have a pretty memorable visual. Yeah. You got anything? Uh, not really. I I think I was just thinking of uh of Namor. <laughs> that uh, that would be pretty. He is entertaining. golden age. He is but a golden if, age hero. If I were work. being if I were being facetious, I guess I would have to pick Ma Hunkle. <laughs> was she, was she like the red tornado or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She showed up in JSA <laughs> as an old granny. She yeah, was like yeah, this yeah. kindly old lady who who cleaned their mansion well, or whatever didn't she have like a a pot for a mask yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> something silly like that <laughs> oh, imagine oh. a realistic take on that character set <laughs> in her prime years that could be fun she'd just be she'd be an old lady with dementia <laughs> 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 that's the only way that makes sense <laughs> imagine wearing a pot or a bucket on your head and just getting hit over and yeah. over <laughs> She's got like mad CTE. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. 
well, if there's nothing else, I, I guess this is the point in the show where we say our goodbyes. So, yeah, if anyone has anything to contribute to the conversation, by all means, hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or thread at us or X at us or <laughs> Insta at us, whatever. Somebody you know? give us an invitation to Blue Sky because we're not on Blue Sky. Yeah, it's too exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. No, oh, I thought you were going to do that thing where you uh, encourage our listeners to give us five stars and tell all oh, their yeah. friends and loved ones. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if you happen to be listening to us, uh, please give us a rating on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on because it would greatly help us. We would definitely appreciate it. It would help boost us to other people. We need our signal to be boosted. You're telling me that alt-right uh, YouTube channels can get a signal boost, but we can't? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this country? Come on. <laughs> By the way, Albert, who are our sponsors for this episode? <laughs> uh, this week's episode is, did you think that Halloween was, was that scary season was over? Well, guess what? There are far greater things to be afraid of this year. This episode is brought to you by one of those things. Taint itch. <laughs> Ain't nothing scarier than feeling the terror in your taint. <laughs> I'm scared. Aren't you? Terrified after that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next week, we're taking another bye. I think Albert's got some more comic book shops he's got to hit up. But after that, that we will return. And I think we're probably going to do an autopsy on the Marvels. Right, Albert? I believe that is the case. So we got some time, you know, uh, learn to be fond of us while we're away because You'll never know what a good thing you had until it's gone. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> preach, brother, preach. Yeah. And in this instance, the good thing that I'm talking about is us. <laughs> as long as it's not taint itch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Peace out, everybody. Bye, everyone. <laughs>